Father, thank You for letting us be a part of Your family. And thank You, Lord, that You've set aside time to be a family. And thank You, Lord, for the history of gathering as a conference in these camp meetings. For this Sabbath, Lord, as we come to its final minutes, I pray send Your Spirit down to bless us. Anoint each one of us. If there's comfort we need, may we find it. If there's a change of direction that we need to make, may we accept it. And I'm just praying, Lord, strengthen Your church and help us to cooperate with You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, I didn't explain to you what happened after they told us we couldn't come back to school. Well, God's arm is not short. And my dad was a computer programmer. And he got with my mom all these things we didn't know about. And I mentioned this morning, my dad is a good man. He was an agnostic then. I'm not sure where dad is right now. But in the late 1970s and the early 80s, the interest rates in America were about 10%. By the fall of 1981, the interest rates went all the way up to 18.45%. Somewhere in that time period, my dad refinanced the house to keep us all in school. Later when we were teenagers, because we did, we met Jesus there. He would be sitting at work with his friends and they would be talking about their kids and the trouble they were getting into and coming home late at night and coming home drunk. And My dad said, my kids don't do that stuff. And they said, oh Ron, because I'm Ron Jr. They said, oh Ron, you just don't know. And my dad decided he wasn't going to try to convince them because they weren't going to believe him. You know, the time to be pointing people towards Christian education, which will begin in August, is right now. If you've got somebody that God's put on your mind that ought to be there, start asking God to lay the impression on that person's heart. You know, I'm somewhat of a poster child for somebody that never should have been able to go. When I was attending college, actually I stayed home a year and went to a public university, public college for a year before I went off to Andrews. It was one of the worst decisions of my young adult life and my mom and my dad weren't going to challenge me on it. I did go off to Andrews the next year. I did not have enough money. And I came perilously close to not being able to stay. But God had a plan for my life. And when God's got a plan, He makes the provision, doesn't He? 
So we're going to have some sacrifice on the way out of this world. But you know, if we all pull together, we can do it. And I don't know how many children aren't in a Seventh-day Adventist school because of money. But I don't think it's a whole lot. But I'll tell you what. God has gifted this church with a wonderful, educated, wonderfully endowed group of people. And when God puts something on a church's mind, a Seventh-day Adventist church's mind, they can do it. So I just want to encourage you. Now tonight, I've entitled my message, Cheers to Philippi, the Double Knotted Church. And I want to read to you from a letter written in 1902 in which Ellen White said, Remember that in every assembly you meet with Christ, the Master of Assemblies. Now, if Jesus is the master of something, and it's noted, it's worth noting. Jesus is the master of assemblies. So we ought to assemble with the master of assemblies. She goes on to say, encourage a personal interest in one another, for it is not enough simply to know men, people. We must know men in Christ Jesus. We are enjoined to consider one another. This is the keynote of the Gospel. The keynote of the world is self. Tonight I want to talk with you about knowing your fellow church members in Christ. Actually bonding deeply with them so that the world could know that something very different is going on at your church. When I was a boy growing up, the oldest of four, we sat around the table every night for supper. I had a spot at the table. I don't know how well it was thought out, but I sat at my father's right hand. We sat at the table and we talked about the day. We sat at the table and we were taught manners like don't chew with your mouth open and wait until you're done chewing to talk. That time sitting at the table every night without the television on and without any cellular communication, which hadn't been invented at least for the masses yet, that time together was time for us to become a family. Now most people understand today that the family's under siege as well. Homes are struggling to stay together, and when they are together, they're not very together. I have in my pocket a device that has done much good and much evil. And it depends on how you use it. I know I was uh, picking my daughter up from Great Lakes Adventist Academy. By the way, I, I told the principal one time, and I'll tell all of you, I would pay twice as much money to send my daughter to this school than they charged. She just graduated. And they are making a serious, serious attempt at bringing Jesus into their lives. And I value so much the fact that there is, this campus is a sanctuary. The kids are not perpetually bombarded by the temptations that the world is putting in their pocket. These phones buzz and hum and chirp and ring and vibrate because the way it's set up 
Once you connect into a Snapchat or an Instagram feed or whatever it is, it's hard for you to be left alone. The other thing about these phones, speaking now as an experienced father of four, is that these phones allow your kids to live a secret life. And so if you put one of these in their hands, make sure they know that it's yours and you have the right to look at it whenever you want. If you don't, these these phones are the Trojan horse of the 21st century. When I was a kid, if I wanted to use the phone, I had to ask permission. When I got on it, It had a cord, so I couldn't get too far away from where it was. My conversations were not overly private. And my mom and dad felt it was better that way. And you know, I'm going to give them a shout out. I'm going to give them a witness. They were right. And we all need to kind of remember to honor our fathers and our mothers. Have you ever gone to a restaurant And watch people sitting around the table and they're looking at this instead of looking at each other. I want to encourage you to protect the bonding experience for your family. Now, I'm bonded with my wife. I'm very bonded with my wife. I have three sons. And I didn't know how that worked until they all got to be a certain age. Now, those three boys could look at each other and they could unite against their father. Now, they love their dad and they respect their dad, but they didn't always like their dad, which is the parenting journey. And if my wife and I had not been bonded when they ganged up on me, And if they thought they could run to mom and get a different outcome when they were little, imagine how terrible it would have been when they were big. My ministry has strength because I'm bonded with my wife. When she says to me, you're on the wrong track, you need to stop and rethink that, or don't say that again, there's two services at Village, don't say it that way in the second service, I listen. Now I want to talk about bonding with my church. Bonding with your church is like an arranged marriage. You didn't really choose them, and they didn't really choose you. And you know, you think some of them are a little unique, and they think some of us pastors are a little unique. I can remember the first district I had on my own. I had been taught in the seminary that when I went out, I should preach a sermon that cast a vision and maybe preach it on the framework of Martin Luther King. I have a dream. I did that. I was preaching in a little church in Monticello, Indiana. And we say Monticello in Indiana, not Monticello. And I was preaching my heart out to those 25 people. And I talked about in one of the churches, maybe that was at Kokomo, but they all had gravel parking lots. 
And one of my dreams was we'd have enough people pulling their cars into the parking lots that the weeds wouldn't grow. The next day, we had a board meeting. And in that board meeting, the head elder made fun of me. I mean, he literally mocked me. When the meeting was over, I'm in my mid-twenties and I'm driving home and I'm saying to myself, I don't have to do this. I can do something else. And as I crossed the Tippecanoe River on Route 24, I had a unique experience. I have never had this before and I've never had it since. I believe it was a demonic attack. And I don't talk like this casually. I'm not a sensationalist. I've never had any problems with asthma. I've been a robust, healthy individual. But as I was only a mile or two away from the church and it felt like about a one-inch steel band was around my chest and it was connected to some kind of uh, gear-driven motor and it was taking the breath out of me. And I pulled off to the side of the road praying, Lord, help me. The sensation subsided. I caught my breath and I drove home. The funny thing is, is that that wasn't the only difficult situation I had with that little church. I can remember we were going to do a grief seminar with Larry Yeagley. It was a video seminar back when we used video cassettes. And I said to them, you know, this is a video seminar. We need a different television. Well, they didn't want to buy a new TV. Well, what they had... Now, I'm, I'm older than some of you and younger than some of you. But the television they had that they wanted to do it on was a 13-inch black and white TV. Now, that was a relic when I started ministering. And I said to them, we can't do that on that television. People have nicer TVs in their homes. Why are they going to come to church and watch a 13-inch black and white TV? This will dishonor the Lord. No, pastor, no, no, no. So I went out and bought one myself. I didn't buy it with their money. I bought it with mine. And later on, when people actually came to the church, they felt bad. So what did they do? They offered me the 13-inch television. They had $10,000 in the bank, and they were saving it for their rainy day fund. And when I looked around at the church, I thought maybe the clouds were gathering. But they were willing to vote to do evangelism, and so we voted on a weekend business meeting. We voted to spend $3,000. It was a Saturday night. And we voted to spend $3,000 on evangelism. That Friday in the mail, a check had come for $2,000 for the evangelism fund. I didn't know it until we voted it. And before the evangelism was over, another $1,000 had showed up. They weren't out any money. And God began to work in their midst. And I want to tell you something. What started out a little bit rough, that turned out to be the sweetest little church. They became my little Philippi. And I want to tell you, those people and I became family. You know, some of the people in your church that you like the least, if you'll get to know them in Christ, 
will be your best, not only friend, but one of your closest brothers and sisters in the Lord. So you know, back in the 1990s, America was trying to save Europe from some ethnic cleansing. And so a wing of our Air Force was dispatched to fly above the skies of Bosnia. And on June 2, 1995, Scott O'Grady was flying his F-16. He was with one other pilot, and they were flying in the clouds. And what the Bosnians were doing was they brought in their surface-to-air missiles, but they would turn them off. And they wouldn't turn them on until they heard the sound of jet engines. Scott O'Grady was flying in the clouds. They heard the jet. They flipped on the switch. They fired two missiles. One missile exploded between the two F-16s. And because it was cloudy, Scott O'Grady couldn't see. The other one was headed right for his airplane. It hit his airplane dead on. It exploded into a ball of flames. And the other pilot flying with him had no idea that he had survived. But he hit the eject button in time, and he was catapulted out of his airplane with a 29-pound survival bag, which he found when he got to the earth. He took that bag, and for days, he laid there with various adrenaline rushes, using a sponge to soak up water off leaves, eating bugs, He was seeking to survive just to hang on to his life. Now imagine for a moment that you're Scott O'Grady. And you've got just a little bit of radio power left. And you turn it on and you call to base. And base says, well, Captain, we've got two options for you. Option number one is that we're going to pick Two people from each of the armed forces branches. So we're going to get you ten people from each of the special forces units. And we're going to put them together. And they are one option we have to try to get you out of this thing alive. And they said, we do have one other option. We have a team of Navy SEALs that have been on 20 missions together. They are exceptionally bonded and very well tuned to work with each other. Which one do you want? It's not a hard question, is it? Because at the end of the day, we know that a team is way better than a loosely collected aggregate or group of individuals. What is it about bonding that we aren't willing to pay the price to experience in the church. Now, I want to tell you one of the greatest thrills of my pastoral life has been the last two rounds of the Unlock Revelation experience. And I'm going to tell you why. Number one, Seventh-day Adventist Church is not the biggest church on the face of the planet, and we all know that. But I want to tell you, before there was Facebook, there was Seventh-day Adventism. We are a connected people. We are a linked linked group of individuals. It's six degrees for the rest of the world, but I'm convinced it's only about two degrees for Seventh-day Adventists. 
And you can plop me down in China or India or Africa or Indiana. And if you allow me to connect with somebody who knows Jesus and I know Jesus and we can know each other in Jesus, there is a bond. I want to take advantage of that bond. I do not want to come up to the final crisis unbonded. But we have churches where people... It's almost like they do eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Or do I want to go or do I not? We have taken the church for granted. There are people in it we don't particularly know. Some of the ones we know we don't particularly like. And we've started relating to the church and it's programming as if it's just a TV channel. And I can choose it or reject it, not realizing that every time we miss gathering with the Master of Assemblies, we missed out on a blessing and we were supposed to be there to give a blessing. Donald Joy is an expert on bonding. There are 12 steps, he says. There's the eye-to-eye bond. And we'll do this in the context of dating or married love. There's the eye-to-body bond. You notice somebody that looks good, they notice you. There's nothing wrong with that. There's the eye-to-eye bond. All of a sudden, you notice that you're being noticed. This isn't just with dating relationships. I was in Meyer about a year ago, and I'm in one of the automotive aisles, and I walk by this young couple, and they have a baby, probably a year old or so, and as I walk by him, he's looking at me, and I look at him. And he lays a smile on me, and I lay a smile back on him. He liked it. I went to looking for my oil filter or whatever I was after, and I'm all done, and I'm turning to go, and I look, and he's looking at me again. He wants an eye-to-eye bond. So I lay a smile on him this time, and he lays a smile back on me. It's a good thing. It's how it works. There's the voice-to-voice bond. You actually start to talk. Eventually, you hold a hand. Eventually, you put a hand on a shoulder. When the relation gets a lot closer, you might put a hand around a waist. And when it really starts getting to where it's bonded, you might put your hand on the person's face. And then, you might put your hand on their head. Now, the last four bonds are not for this audience. They're for married couples, and so we're not going to go into them. But I do want to say something to the young people. When you skip over all those bonds like the world's encouraging and you rust down to the last four which aren't even appropriate for general audiences, it's like you have a bag of skin without bones and muscles. And when you look at it the next day, it isn't very pretty. You know, if you're not rebonding, you're unbonding. That's in a marriage and that's in a church. Bonding is never, ever a waste of time. So when you're married, you're not wasting your time to go out and go for a walk if that's all you can afford. You're not wasting your time to sit across the table and talk to each other. You're not wasting your time after the kids have gone to bed and you sit up connecting. You're not wasting your time when you take a special weekend as a married couple. You're not wasting your time if you do decide to go out to eat. Bonding is the point of life. Now, I want to take a journey in the Word about how God bonds us. 
But I'm going to read just a little bit out of Acts of the Apostles. She says, In these first disciples was presented a marked diversity. They were to be the world's teachers, and they represented widely varied types of character. In order successfully to carry out the work to which they had been called, these men, differing in natural characteristics and habits of life, needed to come into unity of feeling, thought, and action. I want to tell you something. Ten Navy SEALs who have gone on 20 sorties together, 20 expeditions together, they know some degree of unity of feeling, thought, and action. And the devil is really, really worried that the Seventh-day Adventist church, the remnant church of prophecy, is going to come into unity of feeling, thought, and action. Now listen, we can all be in unity here tonight because you can say, I agree with what the preacher said. That can be a baseline level of unity. It's, but what we're after is something a whole lot more. We're after more than just unity of thought. We are after a program where we work together, Grow Michigan, TMI, Unlock Revelation. We're after unity of action as well. But tonight, don't be confused. I'm also after unity of affection, unity of feeling. This church bound up tight together, praying for each other, assaulting the gates of heaven. I want to tell you, I'm tired of the world assaulting the gates of the church. It's time for the church to assault the gates of hell. And the way we're going to do it is we are going to press together. Now, if you want to do a little search, you'll find out. Type in the word. Go to the LNG White State. Type in the phrase, press together. 283 times she'll use the phrase. Must have been just a little bit important. But it gets more impressive than that. You know, John writing his gospel spends an awful lot of time on Jesus last week. And more than that, the time in the upper room. And Jesus had a prayer. It was a prayer for oneness. It was a oneness like he had with his Father. It was a oneness so the world could know. It was a oneness that the world can't get because the world's about self and Christianity is about considering one another. That phrase, the prayer of Christ, you can check it out when you have some free time. And this is a pre precise search. This is with the quotation marks on it. Ellen White refers to the prayer of Christ, which is a direct link to John chapter 17, she uses that phrase and it's reused in the republication 700 times. Now you put pressed together at 300 almost and the prayer of Christ for a prayer of unity at 700, you aren't going to find lots of topics in the spirit of prophecy that encourage us to come into oneness. But you can't come into one oneness with someone you don't know. You don't want to come into some oneness with someone you don't like. So the church has a little problem because you put just a little bit of distraction in the mix, a little bit of money to do the fun things that your parents couldn't afford to do. So the church was the center of their life. And pretty soon you've got a weak church. And it's not good. Take your Bibles and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18 is... One of the early places that talks about bonding. It's the story of David and Jonathan. David has just killed the, the, the giant Goliath. Jonathan has stood back and watched. And what we know about Jonathan from the rest of the Scriptures is that he is a man after God's own heart too. And Jonathan is watching this all happen. 
He hears the echoing shout of David saying, you come to me with sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And Jonathan's soul is being connected to the soul of this other young warrior. 1 Samuel 18, now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was, if you have an NIV, maybe King James, I haven't looked at it, but the New American Standard says the soul of Jonathan was knit. It was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. I want to tell you there is a bond in Christ that is deeper. The Bible says when you walk in the light as He is in the light, you have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. These men were both men after God's own heart and that's why they were bonded so deeply. And by God's grace, we will be men and women after God's own heart and we will be bonded deeply. Now listen, when you skip your communion with Jesus... You are setting the threshold for how deeply you can bond with anybody. Because Jesus is the safest and the best person to explore who you are. The unexplored soul, which is not self-aware and lives in the insecurity of the natural pride of the carnal heart, cannot easily focus on other people for its focus is constantly on itself. But when you know how much Jesus loves you, And when you enter into the experience of loving through Him, there is the ability for a different kind of bond to develop in your life. When we know each other in Christ, we will be bonded like no other group on the face of the planet. Turn over to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, the beautiful psalm of being always in God's sight. Psalm 139, it's David expressing the fact that God is always there. What a beautiful thought, especially if you're a fugitive. Verse 13, in the New American Standard it says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Now, I like it how the New International Version reads. It reads, for you knit me together. The word knit, all these little knots when we were being created inside our mother's womb, Jesus was knotting us together. He was bringing us together. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's keep going on this theme of the body and being knitted together. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll begin with verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all the humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. I guess in the church of Ephesus, there was a need for some toleration. There might be a need for some toleration in your church too. There is in my church, sometimes it's tolerance for the preacher. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. Chapter 1 will tell us that body, the body of Christ, is the church. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all. Paul has a point to make. Skip down to verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children. 
tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects, from whom the whole body being fitted and, some of your versions say, knit together, held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now listen, we're living in an age where the church appears to be stuck in tradition mode and the world's in progressive mode. But I want to tell you, it won't be long until the world says we've had enough social progress, we want some tradition back. Now, when Paul grabs onto this imagery of the body and the parts being joined together, each individual part joined together according to the proper working, he's taking the imagery of Psalm 139 and using the body as an illustration for the church. Now, when I'm shaking hands at my church on Sabbath morning after I preach, I have to be just a little bit careful. Because if somebody walks up to me and they hit the end of my right hand the wrong way, I'm in pain. There's a reason. Because as a younger man, I love to get out on the wood and play basketball. And these big, long arms and these big, long hands and these big, long fingers were very good for playing that sport. But you know, I had one too many basketballs hit me on the end of the hand. And one day when I was playing, it hit me just hard enough that all of a sudden my finger was not straight anymore. It had a jag in it. And I looked at it and it didn't feel right. And somebody else, you know, these medical people, you got to watch out for them. They're always looking for an opportunity to practice on you. And uh, somebody looked at it. I love my doctor, and I love my mother-in-law nurse, and my mother nurse, and my sister-in-law nurse. I love them all. But I looked at that, and they looked at it. I didn't know what to do. They said, let me see it. So I turned my head the other way, because I didn't want to see what they saw, and I didn't want to know what they did. And they grabbed on to the end of my finger, and with one quick little yank, they put it back in place. If I was a smarter person, I would have quit doing that. But I'd go out there and I'd do it some more, and pretty soon I got to where I could do it. Hey, no problem, time out. Let me do this. They'd offer it. No, no, I'll do it myself. And I'd yank it into place. The problem is now is that this finger has a loose joint, and if you come up to shake my hand and you just hit the end of the finger, it can pop out a joint. It's not good for the body to have loose joints. I want all my joints tight. And Jesus wants the same thing for His church. You know, you can't speak the truth in love if you're not a bonded community. And this is the problem. We have some people who think the truth should be spoken under any circumstances, and there is no relational fabric in place, and there's not enough assurance that you're my friend, not my enemy. We come together so we can know each other in Christ so that we can be a tightly knit together body. And when we don't come together and we don't see what's going on at the church as a family reunion week after week and time after time, we're assuring ourselves that when our kids need somebody other than the parents to say something, they won't have it because they're not bonded with that generation and they're not bonded with that person. Your kids are being taught that the older a person is, the less relevant they are, which is exactly the opposite of the fact. I want my kids bonded with the older people in my church. I used it all the time. When my boys thought I was their problem, I'd say, well, hey, go talk to Mr. Kane. 
Well, no, I'm not going to go talk to him. He'll agree with you. Well, then go talk to Mr. Uppis. No, I'm not going to talk with him. Or go talk to Miss Dr. Griffin. No, I'm not going to go talk to them. I want to tell you, friends, I used it. When they thought I was the most unreasonable adult on the face of the planet, I wanted to run into a few others that they really knew weren't. I wanted my children bonded to my church. I still want them bonded to my church. I want them knit together. Turn over to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, not too many pages away. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not personally seen my face. He's operating at a disadvantage. There are people in the church that don't even know Paul. They don't know how big his heart is. They don't know how large his commitment is. He's still one of their pastors. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself. What Paul is saying is there's an understanding of Christ that comes in a communion with the church. And if you're not in close communion with the church, you're going to miss out on part of the mystery. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, verse 4, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in the body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. Skip down to faith. Skip down to verse 18. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Do you see how many distractions there are for these early churches? The worship of angels and self-abasement, take your attention off Jesus. It's the constant ploy of Satan finishing, taking his stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Now Paul's doing some spiritual diagnosing. The person's not converted. Paul is not afraid to tell people they're not converted. And not holding fast to the head. Okay, we're going to go back to the body. Here we go. From whom the entire body being supplied... And some versions say held together, others say knit by the joints and the ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Now I want to tell you how to revitalize your church. I want to fashion it as a new program. And here's how it works. As a matter of fact, I'd like to see the whole Michigan Conference, the whole North American division. I know that the world church is attempting it. But if you want to revitalize your church and you want to feel good about the presence of the Holy Spirit making it fragrant and fruitful and giving people freedom, just do this one thing. Gather together in the middle of the week. Share what God's done for you. Be brief. And then get down on your knees and praise Him and pray for the things you need in unity of feeling, thought, and action. And Jesus Himself promises that He'll listen because He listens to group prayer in a certain way. And it's a little bit different because it's hard for a group prayer to go selfish. God says where two or three are gathered. We used to call this the prayer meeting. And I want to tell you, God loves to answer the prayer of the symphony of His members that are raising up a beautiful refrain of request 
and praise to God. You get 90%. You get 50% of your people out praying for the 50% that aren't there. And I assure you that slowly, maybe not so slowly, God will give us back what we've surrendered in this last generation or two. My prayer is, I prayed this once at the end of a sermon, my prayer was that, Lord, you would bond bond me deeply enough with this church that I would lay down my life for somebody with whom I share no actual, literal DNA. If you're not bonding with the body of Christ, it's wounding your Christian experience, and it's wounding the church's witness to the world. When I show up to preach a series of sermons, my greatest fear shouldn't be that the rest of the army isn't going to show up on the battlefield to support me as I pull out the sword of the Spirit and contend with false teaching, false doctrine, misunderstanding. And I want to praise the Lord that in these last unlock revelations, my church has come out to pray and to mingle and to hold up the Word of God in prayer. This is how we're going to win the victory. We have programs and they're good programs, but it's time for them to be bathed in prayer by groups of people that are committed to each other, committed to Christ, and committed to the lost. Philippians chapter 1. Go back just a page or two. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. That's an important choice of words. These are bondservants. They're not slaves because they're conscripted. They are servants for life. It's like in the Old Testament when they had their ear put on the doorpost of the Master because they loved them. And their ear was pierced. This is a choice. Their love for God and God's love for them has created a bond that can't be separated. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from this day until now. For I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in who? In you. Okay, now, this is where I want to give everybody a little challenge. When you're reading the New Testament, and you read the word you, unless it's written to a single person like Titus or Timothy, that you is almost always plural. You know what that means? That means that when Paul's talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he says, don't you know that you're the temple of God? He's not talking about your physical body as a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the bonded group of believers. That reference, like this reference, is a reference to the church. Now there's nothing wrong with you claiming the promise for yourself as you connect yourself to the church. But these yous in the New Testament, when they're written to churches, are written in the plural. God wants to bring not just you. He wants to bring you and all the rest of His family, and you've got something to do with it. Have you ever gone to use some super glue and got it on your fingers and didn't know it? 
you've got just a fraction of a second. And if you go a little too long and you try to pull it apart, you've got a, a, a layer of epidermis that's no longer connected to the right flange. There's other products like that. I once needed to run a water line through the basement of my house to the outside for some horses. And I had one of these red cans with a yellow lid. On the outside it said it was great stuff. And I shook it and shook it and shook it and it was going to do exactly what I wanted. It was going to fill the void between the hose and the cement wall. The only problem was was that I did not have any rubber gloves on. And after I filled the void, since I was in a pair of nasty jeans anyway, I just took my hand and I smoothed it out because I knew the way it dried is the way it looked. And then I took my hand and I wiped it on my jeans. Man, I should have run for some kind of solvent because for the next three weeks, I felt like I was a wasp with an exoskeleton on that hand. I could not get that stuff off for the life of me. And I would sit there over the next three weeks and I would pick at it. And eventually, I became a free person. It was great stuff, all right. But I was going to be a whole lot more careful with it the next time. There are illustrations in life that represent the bonding that Jesus wants. And in the book of Colossians, Paul writes, beyond all these things, all the other efforts you might put in, Beyond all these things, put on the perfect bond of unity, which is love. There was a man at one of my churches that I didn't like. He was an older guy, and he had some bad habits. One day, one of the ladies told me that they saw him in the kitchen. I probably shouldn't tell this story. Because some of you want one more excuse not to stay for potluck. And they saw him in the kitchen with one of the dishes sitting there, and he took his finger and he stuck it in and he tested it out and acted like he hadn't done anything. Just gave me one more reason not to like him. But you know what? That man became one of my very best friends. We came to know each other in Christ. And I was willing to surrender some of those things that would have been obstacles without the love of Jesus that I couldn't have overlooked. And I'm not saying you overlook bad manners. Somebody probably should have said something like, Sir, please don't do that. For the sake of all the ones who would come along in innocence and take a scoop. But when I fail to get to know Jesus myself and I don't explore my own heart and I don't let Jesus expand my heart and give me the glasses of love, it's going to be very difficult for me to overcome the natural impediments to going to church, to engaging in conversations, to investing in other people's lives. But I want to tell you something. When Jesus becomes Lord, what you find out is that the church is the one object of His supreme regard. And He wants me to be impacted by them and He wants them to be impacted by me. There are rough places that are going to come off of me because I fellowship with you. And there are rough spots that are going to come off you because you fellowship with me. But if we don't fellowship together, we don't look like much of a threat to the 
adversary of our souls. But when we press together, when we seek to fulfill by our schedules and our volitional choices that we are going to fulfill the prayer of Christ and become one as Jesus is one with the Father, then we start to cause the foundations of hell to quake and shiver because when we ascend as a corporate group in prayer, God listens in a different way. Jesus said, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. You know, I didn't lose my job when I accepted the Sabbath. And my wife didn't threaten to leave me. And my boss didn't threaten to fire me. But there are people who lose everything when they follow Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I've got a gift for you. It's the church. You may not have as good a job as you had before. You may have given up that nice estate. But on Sabbath, you may sit in the kitchen of someone whose heart is overflowing with God's love and there's peace in their home. And they may have that nice estate and they'll share it with you. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the devil is looking to unravel everything that is well knotted in society. Children not loving their parents people not loving the church, society not appreciating the government, teachers being the problem, not the solution. You can go right on down the list. But I want to tell you what. There's nothing much sweeter than being in a well-bonded, highly functioning, vitalized love relationship with your own family and with the church family. You know, if I was driving out to Oregon and my car broke down, my cars tend to be a little bit older. I just graduated my last child from Great Lakes, but I still have one more journey through the university. If my car broke down, especially in the days before I had enough money or good enough insurance to have that roadside assistance, and I needed help, I'd try to find out where the nearest Seventh-day Adventist church is and I'd make a connection. There are people that I know that if I needed, needed help and had a problem in the middle of the night, I could get on the phone and I could call them up. They're not related to me except they're a brother in Christ and they would stop everything. They wouldn't complain that I woke them out of sleep. Their only interest would be, Ron, what can I do for you? I want to be that kind of person and I want more of those kind of people in my life. But it takes work. It takes discipline. It takes focus. It takes intentionality. And there are a lot of people out there that would rather have their kids playing soccer than attending adventurers. And they'd rather stay at home and watch something on Netflix than be a part of a worship service in the middle of the week. Some of you know them. Start praying. And if God puts you in a position to invite, invite. If God puts you in a position to challenge, challenge. Now, let's tie this off. I'm a master guide. I, amen. It's a great organization. When I joined the church school, I decided I'd try Pathfinders out again. So I did. I was a seventh grader, so I came in as an explorer. I went on to be a ranger and a guide. And then I went back and got my friend and my companion. And then I wanted to get that master guide. You know, when you're in Pathfinders, 
you have to learn to tie a lot of knots. And I can still remember them telling me the rabbit comes around the tree and out of the hole. And What one's that, everybody? That's the bowline. All right, thank you all the Pathfinder instructors. And then they had knots like the sheep shank and the half hitch. Now, I have to remind everybody, including the younger set, that I grew up in the age before Velcro. So knots mattered. And I also grew up in the age before ratchet straps were common paraphernalia. And so when I put my canoe on the car and I was headed to Minnesota to go canoeing in the wilderness, I needed to tie it on. As a matter of fact, on one of our canoe trips a few years back, we had a member driving a, a, a Suburban or a Tahoe with a load of canoes and one of them came off in the middle of the night. Somebody got a nice canoe. But the first knot I learned... My mother taught me. It was when I learned to tie my shoes. You don't need to look. But if we were in a conversation and you wanted to check it out, you could just like grab my pant leg right there and lift it up. And I'll tell you what you'd see. First you do the overhand. Then you do the bow. And my mom said, you always double knot your shoes because you don't want them to come undone. And I don't know how many thousands of times I've tied my shoes. I don't wear slip-ons. I don't know how many thousands of times I've tied my shoe. But I know this. When I really cinch it down, if it's got an extra knot on it, it's not going to come undone. Pretty soon, the scorn of the world will be turned on any of you or any of us, I should say, that are faithful to Jesus and to the commandments of God. The bonds of our affection are going to be tested. Some of them are going to strain. And I don't like to think of it like this, but some of them will break. We have a mission, and that mission only works well when we think well of each other. We have a mission, and that mission is to show the world there's a different kind of social relating going on inside of our church. We have a mission, and that mission is to press together, but we're not doing it. We have admonition from the Scriptures that says don't forsake the assembling together. Should we be surprised that that's exactly what the tendency is as we enter the 21st century? But all the more so as you see the day approaching. How does it work? Well, the other night we had a religious liberty vespers. It was fairly well attended. When we got in the car to leave, my wife said, you know what just happened? I said, yeah, we had a religious liberties vesper. She said, yes, we had that. But I wanted you to notice we also had a social when it was over because people stood around and stayed around and visited. You know what? I've done a lot of things with my church. I love to go on mission trips, but I don't go on mission trips mainly to build churches. I go on mission trips 
to bond my own people together because in one mission trip, they'll spend as much time together as a whole year staring at the back of each other's heads at church. The Bible says we're living stones. I want to see those living stones fitted together, growing up into the temple of God. But you can't do it if you don't know each other. You can't do it if you're not intentional. But I want to tell you this, the bond that Jesus has for us far outstrips any bond we'll ever have for Him. He says there in Isaiah, a mama might forget her baby. Almost impossible. But He said, I won't ever forget you. I've engraven you on the palms of my hands. Friends, could we make a commitment tonight that we won't bring any more half-baked offerings to the Lord? No more blemished offerings. Some of our churches are suffering just because the church is at the bottom of the priority list. Some of our churches are suffering because uh, people who aren't committed ought to be in the game, and the ones that are committed are overrun with responsibility. I'm convinced that if we would make Jesus first, and we would make the church first in its proper sphere, as we heard described in the ordination today, after your own walk with God, an improper relationship to keeping your, your marriage and your children properly prioritized, if the extended family of the church could be the next priority, I'm convinced we'd know a whole lot more joy even though we'd have a whole lot less artificial entertainment going on. We'd have the kind of interaction that would show that the great treasure is the people around us, not the latest gadget. But you know, if you're too busy to go, and if you're too busy to walk with Jesus, you're not going to know your church members as they should be known in Christ. I love this church. And I'm appealing to all of you tonight at the end of this Sabbath to ask yourself what Jesus wants you to do. How He wants you to change in the way you're relating to Him. Because like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided. All one body we one in faith and doctrine. One in what? Charity. Friends, let's pray that we could be bound together and let's make the choices that would make it happen. Paul had a favorite church. It was the Philippians. In Acts of the Apostles, Mrs. White tells us, the Bible communicates, Paul knew this was his last journey back to Jerusalem. And what church did he choose to spend his time with? She says, of all the believers that Paul had converted, the Philippians were the most true-hearted. Is it any surprise that if you knew you were on your last time, your last lap around the trap, the track, you'd spend it with the ones who loved each other and loved Jesus most? People are going to flock to this church because they see the presence of Christ in our relationships. They see the patience, the forbearance, the bondedness, the commitments. I'm praying to you. I'm praying to Jesus on your behalf. Make the church in its proper sphere, the center of your universe, for Jesus has made your church the center of His. And may God help us to come back a year from now, if we're still here, rejoicing in the joy of a double-knotted church. 
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.